Um, this evening, what, what I've got, what, what I've got planned for us this evening, to kind of round out the picture I've been trying to present. I think as Robert's done a little bit with you already, I want to talk a little bit about Chittamatra, not too much, because I really don't want to get into too headier stuff, um, which can be so easily happen with some of this material. Um, but I do want... Pardon? <laughs> um, because it really does happen so easily. So I'm going to present one particular aspect of... Yogacara thought, the meaning, the meaning of emptiness within Yogacara thought and practice. And then I'm going to move on to something entirely practical, which I did threaten to talk to you about, which is the hindrances. <laughs> you know, which again takes it back into the world of what we actually experience uh, in our daily sittings. Um, I thought I'd start this evening by giving you a couple of readings from Etty Hillison again. Mm. Um, ones I didn't read last night, which I was going to, um, just to, to start us off. Okay, this is, uh, again, a, a diary entry from 1942. For those who weren't here last night, just let me explain. Um, the reason I've been giving is somebody who um, was... A Dutch Jewish woman who died at the age of 29 in Auschwitz, and she wrote the most remarkable diary, um, of which she said things incredibly almost Buddhist, but without ever knowing anything about it, or you know, having any influence whatsoever from that, but just by delving into her own mind and understanding. Okay. You must be able to bear your sorrow. Even if it seems to crush you, you will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it, but bear it like an adult. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on all German mothers, for they too sorrow for their slain and murdered sons. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in, your, in yourself that it is due, for if everyone bears his grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. But if you do not clear a decent shelter for your sorrow, and instead reserve most of the space inside you for hatred and thoughts of revenge, from which new sorrows will be born for others, then sorrow will never cease in this world and will simply multiply. Read you one further passage, and actually, perhaps just the very last thing perhaps you wrote, Bruce, you wrote. With each minute that passes, she says, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. We have to rid ourselves of all senses of security and find the courage to let go of everything. And Is that on the train, too. No, this one, this is the final thing she wrote. This is, the, this is the very final entry. It's a very short line in her diary. She says, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. And I can always para find a parallel phrase in that in Shantideva, um, the great Buddhist poet, writing in the 7th century. 
um, who says that to heal the sorrows of the world, we must take upon ourselves the sorrows of the world, and may the world be happy. Yeah, and it's kind of very similar vein, this idea of, of healing pain, healing pain, becoming a balm for wounds in this world. So I thought I'd kind of share that before we get into the kind of more, I don't know, heady stuff, as I like to put it, of Yogacara thought. Now, let me just say a little bit about um, Yogacara. Well, it goes under a lot of names for a start off. I'll just give you three synonyms. Yogacara, Chittamatra, Vijnana, Vada. Vijnana, Vada. They all mean the same thing. Yogacara concentrates on the yoga aspect of it. Take this off, get too hot. On the yoga aspect of it. Chittamatra, mind only. Vijnanavada, consciousness only. So you've got different synonyms uh, for this particular school. Now this particular form of practice um, became enormously influential in East Asian Buddhism primarily. So China and Japan. Um, It's still very, it's very much there within some forms of Tibetan Buddhism as well. Uh, I always used to say that that everybody within Tibetan Buddhism claimed that the Madhyamaka view was the highest, but scratch them and you find a Chittamatran underneath. (laughs) In other words, they go towards this consciousness-only, mind-only stuff. Now, I want to say something right at the outset, because I think what gets interpreted as a particular position, i.e. probably a philosophical position, a philosophical school, an approach, really starts out probably as a report on experience. And when you start to put into words what you're experiencing, it concretizes it. It makes it into something solid. Um, The more you keep repeating it, then it becomes a theory about the way things are. So I think what... (laughs) One of the salutary messages of this is try not to put too many words around your experiences um, because they might end up as a theory, (laughs) albeit your own theory, and even if it's not anybody else's, um, when you start to put into words something. This is the problem with all forms of wordiness and our relationship to language. Um, even ordinary language that we speak has this great propensity to create a picture for us about the way things are. Um, So much so that William James, the uh, philosopher and psychologist, says that really even common sense was the metaphysics of the masses. It's just another metaphysical position that we hold to that's there often in ordinary language. And very much so when you start putting, when you start to kind of try and detail out uh, your experience, you can end up with something like a philosophical, theoretical position. And I actually think this is what, act- what happened to these particular meditators. Now, if you take the Yogacara part really seriously, it was all about meditational yoga-type practices. Yeah. It wasn't about theorizing, and it wasn't about scholasticism and all the things it eventually becomes. And the emptiness that's propounded in this, in this particular uh, view, if you like, I call it view for you know, kind of shorthand, 
in this view is a particular take on emptiness uh, that was discovered in experience. Even the idea of consciousness only. Well, how does it feel sometimes when you're meditating? It feels as if everything is dependent on your mind. As if there is no kind of outside at all. That everything is within my consciousness. And particularly in those experiences, perhaps, that border on the more deep absorptions, the ones that border on the more, you know, for want of a better term, mystical experiences, where you get the declining of the subject and object in the experience... Well, you could take it, there is nothing outside of my mind whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if anybody's had this in meditation experience, but it's like, you know, when you're really, really deeply concentrated and everything drops away, everything seems mind-dependent. When even the objects disappear for yourself, that you might be even concentrating on to induce the meditative state. Um, it appears as if there is only mind. Now, I'll speak a little bit about that at the end, but I would say I don't want it to get too heady, so I'm not going to speak much about it. But I want to concentrate just for a very, very brief period on something that's within a text called the Trinsika by somebody called Vasubandhu. This is the 30 verses. Trinsika means 30 verses of Vasubandhu. Um, and within this, he propounds a theory of what's called Swabhava, three aspects of experience. Now, this is not the same as the Trilakana, the three characteristics that we did right at the beginning of the retreat. This is something slightly different. And the meaning of emptiness in Yogacara, Chittamatra, and Vinyanavada thought is very, very specific. You know, it's not the sort of more generalized emptiness that we find, for example, in the Madhyamaka and even going back to the early texts. It's very, very specific to a way of understanding things. And so what Vasubandhu has propounded actually is there are three aspects to our experience which is actually of something unified. So we can approach it, if you like, from three different directions. And the first aspect is called a constructed aspect of experience. This is the world of concepts and language and divisions and distinctions and the way that we see things. Now, I don't think any of us can deny that we're doing this constantly. (laughs) This is what we're engaged in. We're making distinctions and divisions and articulating reality is the way I would put it in some way, with our thinking mind. Um, We know that thinking mind doesn't get necessarily through to reality, but we're trying to think it in some way. However, as you probably gather, what happens if this is reality and you place a map on it, it doesn't quite fit. And so this aspect is called parakalpata svabhava in Sanskrit. Parakalpata. Kalpata is the word because it means an imaginative construct. So all language itself is an imaginative construct. It never gets through to the real. Well, the only comment for that is really to shut up speaking, really, isn't it? I I mean, it's the only place to go, really, from there. Um, But, however, um, we try to articulate as best we can the world through our language. 
This is also the world of all of the distinctions that we're making through language. All the ways that we're articulating and perceiving the world. So when we're engaged in linguistic construction, we see the world in a particular way. And actually, different languages will reflect different ways of seeing the world. Um, any of those of you who know another language really thoroughly will know that just by living it, even if it's another European language. Often, there's just that slight mismatch between your own language and, say, English, for example, uh, in certain things. Now, when you move to East Asian languages and Asian languages in general, you'll see even a bigger mismatch between the, world, the way the world is constructed. So we're constructing. This is what we're engaging in all the time. We're constructing a world. You know, through the ways that we think, and we think primarily um, in images and language. And this is what the world of the Paracalpita Salvava is, is actually this imaginative construction. So actually we're all imagining a world. Yeah. But is your world happy? No. I say that most you know, kind of definitely, but it might not be the case. It might be happy for you, but no. What, the, what is being said in this form is in, in this construction, because the construction doesn't fit the reality of things, there is dukkha. Yeah, there is a mismatch. You know, language is fairly stable, comparatively. And what it's, what it's trying to pin down, of course, isn't stable which is the world, because it's arising and passing away. And certainly when we begin to you know, talk about an emotion for ourselves, just think about that, talk about an emotion for ourselves, it's usually on the decline. You know, I'm happy. No, I'm not. I've just recognised it. Mm -hmm. It's probably on its way out, yeah. that particular thought. Yeah. So language is never really, really quite grasping after reality. The very way the syntax of languages articulate a world you know, gives us a particular picture of the world as it is. I think I gave you the quotation earlier on. I mean, we had much, much talk about the notion of self, didn't we? Well, I certainly did. I was mean, talking a lot about self earlier on and saying, of course, that, you know, for example, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein says it could be be merely that the whole notion of the self is a grammatical error, mm -hmm. <laughs> simply a product of the way our languages is articu are articulated. You know, simply because we have a subject and an object, you know, and you have predicates of experience. Um, for example, I am happy. You know, well, if there's happiness around, there's got to be an I which it's attached to. So it presents us a picture of a something stable underlying our processes of happiness, sadness, joy, sorrow, all of the emotional qualities, what I call the predicates of experience that we're, in, you know, that we're having, that we're experiencing, but we stabilise it by the use of an I here. Actually, if you think about that, that's just a product of our language. If you don't want to be understood in English, you've got to have a subject in English. Why do we take the subject so seriously? Yeah. Now, I mean, I could contrast that, because actually it's the same for a number of European languages, but you know, just taking the English phrase, it is raining, there's a subject predicate sentence. We don't get so attached to the it, do we? <laughs> it seems to be that that's already understood, that's just a product of the way that our languages are formed. 
Um, yet when we say, I am happy, there's a great wealth of devolution onto the I. You know, what I called originally, remember the Royal Highness? You know, that's there. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have a reason for saying that, actually, is because the I, or the self in, in Tibetan, it's actually, it's, it's Ngagye in Tibetan, which means the I is king. <laughs> that's the way we see ourselves you know, when you're attached to an I it's like being I'm royal <laughs> yeah. so might be a throwaway remark but the royal I-ness is definitely there so that I is what we attach ourselves to now all that the Yogacharans, Chittamatrans are saying is that that is a product of our languages that's what we're doing. We're constructing our world primarily through our languages, memory, perceptions of it. So it has a function to do with sanya as well, with the constructive, perceptive faculty. So that is imagination. We, love, we live incredibly creative, imaginative lives, but we take the fantasies as being serious. We take what we bring in our thought processes as being the way it is, until proven otherwise. And even if we manage to construct a stable reality out of our fantasies, which is what it is, our imagination here, every so often, reality will erupt through it. It will burst the bubble. It will come crashing through to erupt your nice little stable household. And as you all know, there's a very good word for that, it's called dukkha. Yeah. This is what comes erupting through. You know, dissatisfaction, distress, tragedy, unhappiness, sorrow, lamentation and despair, if I'm going to go down the whole hog of the, yeah. the text. So all of these come crashing through, and that actually breaks us and shows us actually what we're laying as a map over the world to stabilise it doesn't actually stabilise it. In fact, it's like trying to build your house on shifting sands. It's continually moving. Which leads me into the second of the aspects, which is what is known as the Paratantra Swabhava. The Paratantra. Um, same word, actually, it's used in Tantra later on, but Paratantra means basically the dependent aspect. So we've got a constructive aspect and we've got a dependent aspect. And the dependent aspect is the flow of phenomena. Everything that's flowing. The dependent arising. The dependent arising, that's right. The, the everything dependent on something else that's arising and passing away and arising and passing away. Almost like some vast stream. You know, that's what the world is. It's a world in flux. Yeah. That's basically you know, the teaching, if you take it back to the Buddha's original teaching of anicca, of impermanence. Yeah. So there is nothing stable, there is nothing permanent. The world, okay, is changing at different rates, but there's nothing, in a sense, stable or that we can rely on. Thing, going back to the quote I started with, insecurity within it. This world is radically, in a sense, from a human being's point of view, insecure, ultimately, because it's not stable. And there's no way of giving... You know, of, of us controlling it, ultimately. We, we make attempts, and you see this, I mean, throughout history we've made attempts to try and control things. We even try to control, for example, 
I don't know, the gen- degeneration of historic sites, you know, the, um, the oldest human artefacts, and they still continue to crumble. Uh, and then actually don't end up actually stopping, but reconstructing. <laughs> you know, actually building something new that looks like the old. So we're always trying to arrest change, but we can't arrest change. Now, as you can see, there's a big mismatch between the first aspect, which is actually an aspect which is of more stability, because actually concepts and languages, obviously which concepts are based on, are much, much more stable. They give a picture of stability. The fact that we have this word, as I've often said in other evenings, we have this word, I, gives a picture of stability. This I is radically unstable. You and I are all unstable. And if we attached ourselves to this unstable thing, we would just be buffeted around. That's all. For all the reasons that we've gone into over these last three weeks. Yeah, so there's this buffeting. The eye is not stable. It could be the eye of the storm as well. <laughs> yeah. The storm is life. That's um, in flux all the time. So there's this mismatch between the two. The imaginative, constructed aspect and this flux and flow of experience. Because actually one of the things that we gain when we begin to do engage in meditative practices in cultivations, as we begin to see that flux. It's great insight, isn't it? Close your eyes. As I said before, Mantagunaratna's phrase, close your eyes and welcome to the madhouse. (laughs) 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 Because that's what you see, this flux. Okay, now we can start to incline our minds in particular ways and start to train it. But the first immediate thing that we see is just stuff going through. When we start to look at our bodies, what we see is flux. It's a good job, because otherwise it would probably atrophy and die pretty quickly if it wasn't in flux. If there weren't cells being renewed, if blood wasn't being produced, if bone marrow wasn't producing new bone cells, and and the synapses and brain cells weren't being replaced, uh, we'd die pretty quickly if there wasn't that flux. Then finally, there is something called the perfected aspect, which is called parinishpana in Sanskrit. Uh, so the perfected aspect is quite simple, because the perfected aspect is the lack, or the... You know, actually, let me just put it this way to start with. It's the lack of the constructed aspect in the dependent aspect. So actually, when we talk about it being shunya in Yogacaran thought, Chittamatran thought, then we're saying actually the dependent aspect is empty of the constructed aspect. And that is the perfected aspect. So perfection consists in seeing that one doesn't reside in the other. That there is no constructed aspect inhering to the dependent aspect. So, if you like, the reality is the flux, which we take a perspective on with the constructive aspect, but if we really see it correctly, then the one is empty of the other. 
End of story. What's so big problem about Chittamatra? And thought it's really easy. <laughs> Seeing that's the difficult bit, isn't it? Seeing that we're constantly bringing construction to our experience and emptying ourselves of the tendency to wish to put construction into our experience, i.e. interpretation all the time. And actually one could say that's exactly what happened with Yogacara. You put it into an interpretation, it becomes a theory. It becomes a view. It becomes an opinion about the way things are. So the moment we bring, and I'm sure we've all had this experience sometimes, um, we bring words to, say, a strong emotion, you concretize it. Make it into something. Have you ever had that sense of falseness when you've been talking about emotional issues? You know? Or how about this one? Try and describe the taste of something really difficult you know, to describe the taste or even describe music sometimes you know, using words because it's a direct experience which then is being solidified through language and actually what we're doing when we bring it let's just take a more serious aspect when we bring it to our experience say such as a strong emotional feeling um, and try to place it into words which inevitably is what's going to happen it often ends up sounding extremely false in our own ears. And that, in a way, is telling you something. There's partly an insight there, because it, in a way, is false. It's an approximation at best at what you're trying you know, to convey to somebody else. And, of course, if there's inarticulacy involved in it, then that's when you get violence. That's when you get aggression. That's when you get frustration. You know, when there is you know, perhaps one articulate, you know, say, a, I don't know, a relationship where there's one articulate partner and one inarticulate partner. You know, and it's kind of a mismatch. You've got a really heady mix there for problems <laughs> arising uh, in that. So, in a way, I think what Yogacara thought is actually getting us to see is that big difference between the experience of something and the way that we try to place it into words and articulate it in order to express ourselves. And it's saying, actually, the best position, really, is on to take, if you like, three positions within it. To see the constructed as being useful, but not determinative, I will help us to get around and move around in the world and convey things to each other in a very, very and sort of approximate way. But also, sometimes it's just better to stick with experience. And certainly, to see the one as being empty of the other. And what that really is about, the Parinishpana, the perfected, is to actually see that it's not true that the one is within the other that the one somehow describes the other at all. They all depend on each other. And really what you're doing, if you like, and this is part, I'm not going to go into this, but in Yogacharan thought is the idea that actually you're talking about some kind of wholeness that's being articulated in three different ways. We can see it as a flow of experience, we can see it through our construction, and we can see it through the absence of the one in the other. You, you were mentioning a little while back about how different languages have like different world views, yeah. like some <clears throat> languages distinguish different shades of colours. Yes. 
Um, how does that fit with this? Uh, uh, well, I think I think it show, what it does is it shows you, in fact, that a let's go back to Majamika position that all we're dealing with is a series of conventions. But yeah. the conventions seem to influence experience, don't they? It's yes, they do. And they influence the way, the moment we bring them to our experience, they somehow determine the experience. They reify it. Okay. They end up reifying that experience. You know, where, I mean, for example, when, you, when you're attached, and again, this is something to see when you're in these strong emotions, when you attach the I to an emotion and articulate it perhaps to somebody, you end up solidifying it. You know, so, I am angry with you rather than there's angerness here, and it might arise and it might pass away. <laughs> Somehow, just by putting it together in that way, you make it, in a, in, in a sense, far more real. And that's what we mean by reification, actually solidifying. Yeah. Where there is kinesis, where there is movement, we create stasis through language. We create something static. So the world becomes much, much more static. You know, when we look at the human mind, we're looking at a series of arisings and passings away. When we look at the world, actually that's what we're looking at as well, as a series of arisings and passings away. Except, obviously, it doesn't occur as quickly. Um, some phenomena doesn't occur, some occur a lot more quickly. But some phenomena change at a slower rate than we can perceive here. You know, I always, the classic one for me is, the Himalaya continue to arise. Yeah, the Himalaya, you know, at some point Mount Everest is going to be even taller than it is now, really much taller than it is now, because it's continuing to rise. And the same is true of the world in general. Things are being eroded, being moved, being shaped by the elements, yet we are creating a static world out of the pictures that we have, often presented through language. Yeah, so that was really about the constructed aspect, the way we're constantly constructing experience, and because we're so embedded in our language, you know, whatever that first language might be, in a sense, that's your, that's your reality. Yeah. If it's not questioned. Yeah. So each language presents you with a different world. Yeah. Now, in a way, that's mind. Yeah, because what we're doing is imprinting that on the world continuously. Now, does it ever really, do we ever really question when we're describing something that that isn't the way it is? And it just happens to be a product of the way that this language operates grammatically and syntactically. <laughs> yeah. So it's very much about the position that we are imposing something through our constructive faculties onto the world, onto experience in particular. Yeah. Now, in habit, as I say, another language completely, you get a well, you get similarities, but in a way you get quite a different world. I was talking actually over the coordinator's dining table earlier on, and there's one language that some of you might know, but it's Hopi Indian. Imagine what a different world that must be, because it has no tenses in it. Yeah. Everything is in the present tense. <laughs> yeah. The immediacy of the present tense. Yeah. And there's been big cultural studies done on, on that and the way it um, influences the way that things are seen.
So, but we take this for granted. They don't talk about the past or the future. Right? No, they don't. They must have a way for tomorrow and for yesterday, even if they present it in the in the present. Pardon? So they say, "Yesterday, I go, I go to the river." I'm not entirely so, certain how it works. I'm right. really not. I mean, I haven't actually read the material. I've just dipped into it yeah. on it. But it, they don't. Sit, they certainly don't have all the tensing that we have in our in our languages. Yeah. So everything is is actually articulated in the present. Yeah, so it's the immediacy of the present every moment, which is must be an incredible way of living, um, if you can do it. But really what I'm just trying to say is just think about it. Just think about the massive amount of construction that's going on in our thought patterns. No wonder we take our thoughts seriously if they're being articulated in language continuously. Yeah. Because if we're trying to describe things, as we often do for others, you know, describe feelings and emotions and the way we are and just the way it was at, you know, I don't know, a party or something, what you're doing is presenting a picture. Um, and again, this is not just a product of you know, Buddhist thinkers. I mean, the philosopher Wittgenstein thought very much about this and one of his phrases was, language presents us with a picture and then the picture holds us captive. So what we see, actually, again, with Yogacara thought is the first flowerings of philosophy of language in Indian culture, where they really begin to think about the way that language operates and determines our reality. Yet, I tend to think it's something we take for granted. Yeah. The way that language is shaping and moulding the realities which we live. Oh, no. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no, like what you said the other day about this, uh, for instance, this Tibetan man mm. in London, sort of discovering his emotions where there was no word for it in Tibetan or yeah. something, or the Tibetan literature that's like so poor in emotions. Mm. And. I mean, I've been thinking a little about that, and uh, personally, as a child, I was very much into thinking about that. Mm. It's not conscious without the words. It's not conscious without words. So you can't, you can't have consciousness without words. Well, not all of it, obviously, <laughs> but yeah, part of it is like uh, if you have this emotions and you don't know what they are, you don't know the words for it, you can't share them with anybody, and they become like a muddy thing. You don't have any articulation of mind and mm -hmm. they sort of, you know, you become like a wolf. <laughs> well, that's a little extreme. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> You know, I think the question, the question really is, it is an intellectual question, so I'm not going to really go down that route, which the question is, is do words bring things into being? You know, or does something exist before the words bring them into the being? That's a real mind-only question. <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah. But I'll tell you just a little f funny story. Some of, some of you have probably heard this before, but when... When I was living in the Tibetan monastery with that particular um, monk, yeah, he's actually now the present Dalai Lama's translator, is my oldest Tibetan friend. And um, 
And we had this kind of joke project that we were going to do at some point, which was translate Dostoevsky into Tibetan. <laughs> <laughs> Because it would probably go something like this. Boy meets girl. Girl makes boy unhappy. Boy, in fact, contemplates suicide. Then boy makes girl unhappy. <laughs> it would be everything that ever made Dostoevsky interesting would be cut out. Because <laughs> you couldn't translate it. <laughs> into any form, because there isn't simply the lexicon of words to be able to do it, because actually uh, Tibetan is a very lexically poor language. You know, it, it doesn't actually have that many words comparatively. Uh, and even if there are, they're what's called portmanteau words, you know, they'll cover quite a number of different phenomena. And so it's context which will determine what they mean. And so, you know, it's unlike English, which actually is a very highly developed language, you know, with a lot of um, different words, as is Sanskrit, actually. But just think about that. I mean, that actually shows you just how different a world view you would get on something. Because actually, the thing about it, and it was, could have been anybody. I mean, we just joked about Dostoevsky. But I mean, Dostoevsky presents us with a very rich psychological world, an extremely rich, with lots of intense kind of emotional dilemmas uh, and philosophical dilemmas, which you, it simply could not be translated into Tibetan. And that's, I'm talking about colloquial Tibetan, not classical Tibetan, because classical Tibetan is different, because that was invented, really, to translate Sanskrit texts. And that, so that becomes a much richer language, but nobody speaks that. Yeah. I always remember a, a, an American scholar called Jeffrey Hopkins arrived at the settlement, and he started speaking classical Tibetans to ordinary Tibetans, and they kept falling around laughing. <laughs> 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 speak Latin to somebody, right? That's right, to an Italian, yeah. It's exactly <laughs> the same sort of thing. Yeah. So language is highly deterministic of what we're, what we're doing, and that's what we live. So actually, spare a thought in your reflection sometimes for the role that language is playing in your perception, in the way that we're perceiving things, yeah. and whether it really matches what is out there because this is what Yogacara, I think, is offering at least for us to investigate, is this mismatch between the pure flux of experience, which we are you know, caught up in, actually, whether it's physical, the physical flux of experience or the mental flux of experience, um, that there is a big mismatch between that and the language that we bring to it. Yeah. Yogacara also is... Another, it's an area of thinking which talks about a number of different forms of consciousness. So you've got the six normal forms of consciousness, then basically a mistaken consciousness, whose job it is to misinterpret everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and particularly it's to misinterpret something which is known as the alia in Sanskrit which is what's... I don't know if Rob touched on this with you, the storehouse? Yeah. Yeah. Storehouse consciousness? Well, it was always a big puzzle. And again, I'm only going to give you a brief snippet of this. It was always a big puzzle in Buddhist thought how karmic um, seeding carried over from one lifetime to another lifetime. It was the whole idea. Was that, you know, how, how does it come about? How does it come about 
that, for example, I'm taking a very traditional view here for this to explain this, how does it come about that you're experiencing something from the past that somebody else or something else did? You know, how does that karmic determinacy get over here? Because there's no mechanism, and, and you've heard me talk a little bit about this anyway, in saying that the Buddha never gave a mechanism for how so-called rebirth occurred. I think for very good reasons, but not the same reasons as the Yogacara thing. Um, so it was always a bit of a puzzle how that occurred. Now, what the Yogacara do is they in, bring in the notion of an alaya, which is a, a, a storehouse of consciousness, which actually is a like a seedbed. It's all very metaphorical. I mean, I always get problems with this. It's all very metaphorical. It's like seedings are placed in the alaya, which then ripen in the next continuum. You know, so, in other words, it's seeded down in one alaya, in, in one continuum, and the same alaya, alaya actually is transferred over into the next continuum, so into our continuum, where they continue to ripen. Um, and it's a constant process of these ripening seeds which then project a reality and then we integrate into the alia more seeds so we're constantly ripening and planting at the same time now I I have great problems with this and that's the reason why I'm not going to go into it into detail simply because it sounds like the Artman being smuggled in by the back door. Is that meant to follow the, the person or individual from lifetime to lifetime? Yeah. yeah, they just... Yeah, it's the storehouse consciousness, which is the actually the, rebor- the rebirth part. Associated with each being, there's one. Yeah, because it's being reseeded each time. You know, so in other words, what we're doing with the Alia now is seeding it for what then comes after us. You know, and whatever was before us has seeded it in the particular way that we're experiencing now. So it's cumulative? It's cumulative? <clears throat> yes, in fact, the, really the end, liberation occurs with the emptying of the alia. There's nothing carried over. There's no remainder. Okay. And this is different from sankaras or dispositions. Yeah, that is. Yeah. In terms of numbers, we have a little problem there because if we think we started as 300 pairs of Homo sapiens and we are now 7 billions, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, by the time. Well, I hate to scupper that one, but by the time you get to Yogacara thought, they're talking about many different worlds. Means outside of this particular universe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by this time, and again, I really don't want to get, I mean, you might want to ask me questions, but I'm not going to go into it per se, because I want to then get on to talking about the hindrances, which are very practical. But by this time, in the emergence of Mahayana Buddhism, you're getting these big metaphysical theories about how the, the universe is constructed. And not just our universe, but the, the cosmos, really. It's very cosmological speculations. And what's being kind of, not, I wouldn't even say argued, it's more a matter of faith, is the idea there are other Buddha fields or pure lands in other places, inhabited by other beings. So there's many, 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 many different universes within this cosmos. Um, So it's a big, big theory of everything by the time you get there.
Now, I don't, again, I'd like to just point out, I don't think that's what the Buddha was teaching. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that uh, modern physics, quantum physics, the new theories about parallel universes? Yeah, well, there, 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 is, there is stuff about that, yeah. I mean, how well-founded it is, I'm not quite sure, uh, a lot of it. But there's certainly been that kind of speculation. And interestingly enough, the more... Well, the more we go into the finer particles in physics, the more metaphysical it becomes, because less and less actually can be determined with any accuracy. That's why, actually, in well, with some physicists, not with a huge number, but some physicists have now gone back to a theistic position of thinking there must be some kind of design behind. You mean like intelligent design. Well, not so, well. There must be something which upholds the whole universe. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a number of, of um, physicists who've gone down that route. Why are, they going, why are they come to that conclusion? Uh, I think it's just almost from the aesthetic appreciation of the, what it is, the way the, the universe is put together. Yeah. I mean, I really do. I think they it's almost... believe in chance. They're saying it's, it's too <coughs> that's, that... complex or too... Organism. Just it couldn't be by chance. Yes. You know, something. So therefore, there must yeah. be some, as you say, some the design behind it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very much encapsulated in the phrase by Einstein, is it? God doesn't play dice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That yeah, this, this universe is created. Now, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> so I'm going to pause here and see if there are any questions about Yogacara, because it really is a snapshot. Um, I'm struggling to tie together what Rob has talked about in regard to this. He primarily came at it from a practical point of view, mm. giving us the practice of having open awareness and mm. you know, really dwelling within that stillness and, and all phenomena arising, whether through mm. well, whatever sense, being a, an imprint on that. But the, the primary um, experience is that of the stillness in the vast expanse of space mm. and how that practice you know, ties together with all the theory that you've been talking about. Because he didn't mm. really go into that. Well, it depends on which phase of Yogacara thought he's taking that from, because it's influential on many, many different things, including things like Dzogchen, Mahamudra. Um, that the idea behind it, remember, and this is connecting with the practical, is the idea that there is a sense of wholeness behind things. Mm -hmm. That wholeness is the wholeness of consciousness that exists behind things. And it's that it's getting, particularly when you start looking at practices like Mahamudra, Yogacara, it's being identified with. That's where the spaciousness is. It's almost, again, I can think of a piece of poetry which almost encapsulates it, which is a bit of T.S. Um, Eliot, to be still and still moving. So there's still movement, but there's a stillness right at the heart of movement, which is not moving itself, not being caught up in it. There is the observer, in some sense, is the unitariness of the observer, here consciousness, which allows the, the play of whatever is occurring to be seen. So in other words, there can't be um, things seen without consciousness behind it, and that's a unitary factor behind experience. So... In a way, that kind of spacious and connectedness, whatever metaphors you're using, is really about connecting with that primary observer. Mm -hmm. 
and actually realizing ultimately there's no separation between the what is being observed and the observer ultimately they're all part of the same thing mm-hmm. does that make sense so it's kind of again it's a bit of a snapshot yeah, yeah, yeah. were there any other practices that they engaged in I mean Rob just mentioned that one but that's one. That's one of the prime. That is one of the primary practices that's used, and that's particularly again you see exemplified in in practices like Mahamudra and Dzogchen, mm-hmm. you know, where it's actually getting to the stillness which is underlying all of the all of the flux of experience. Yeah. And I think we all, to some degree, and perhaps if I come back to get to the practical thing again. I think perhaps we all, to some degree, see that, don't we? That when, for example, you experience, say, anxiety, which is agitation. Well, the observation of anxiety is not anxious. <laughs> you know? And so you move the centre of identification from being identified with the anxiety to observing the anxiety. You know? The observation of fear isn't fearful. And, and whatever it is, whatever emotional quality it is that's arising, whatever mental state it is, it's not actually caught up in it. So I think it's this progressive movement back to this, within Yogacara and uh, meditative practice, back to that stillness. To that point where you know, there can be, as is often the metaphors used, it can be the mirror which literally, you know, whatever passes in front of the mirror doesn't ever gets integrated into it. Doesn't matter. You know, whatever clouds pass through the sky, it doesn't alter the nature of the sky. So, so is there still a wheel? Is there still all the sam- samskara <clears throat> round with, you know, those... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I did say it's a very much a snapshot I've given. I mean, yoga channel thought is actually but quite complex. Not to Go into, but this, yeah. that wheel is still there. And all that, of those aspects. Yeah. Yeah. All those aspects are still there. They're still spoken about. They're spoken about in slightly different ways, though. Yeah. You said um, the observer isn't separate from the observed, and in mm. the case of that, mm. um, like the observation of anxiety or whatever, mm. um, well, I suppose. Ah, I suppose it's like is that is that almost like emergently you 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 co-dependent and yet somehow there's a silence right in the very middle of the whole thing. That's right. They're codependent. I mean, the stillness, the stillness and the agitation, whatever the agitation is, can only arise together. So is that something the Buddha would um, acknowledge? No, I don't think so. Not at all. I mean, it's not there. I'm, I'm not kind of the spokesman for the Buddha. I'm not kind of, but I'm saying that my, <laughs> <laughs> my, obs- my, my kind of reflections on the early texts is you don't find anything like this in the early texts. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Yogacara thought really takes off in China, where you've got a completely different approach to the ways of looking at things. And an awful lot of material in the Sanskrit canon that was there by the time it got translated about... The process of translation started in Chinese in the 4th century. By the time um, you you get the material translated, they'd missed out a whole portion of the Sanskrit material that they just weren't interested in, which was all about theory of knowledge, how we know things. And they actually opted for this much more simplistic approach you know, rather than the kind of quite complex Indian theories about 
the ways that we know, and even ones within the Buddhist dimensions, uh, to go towards this much simpler view, which actually has resonances with some forms of Taoism as well. So actually what you see in Chinese thought and Chinese Yogacara is Buddhism seen through the eye of Taoism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Taoism predated Buddhism. Yeah, it does. Yes, it does. um, They they separate the flux of experience from construction, Mm. but don't they recognize that? I mean, if if you're meditating and sort of uh, experiencing the present, then a lot of what you experience is um, the thoughts running through the mind and and memories and and, uh, Plans and so on, mm-hmm. and that's all uh, constructed with language. Yeah, it's all so the language is part of the flow of experience, isn't it? I mean, how could they separate <coughs> what's constructed uh, from experience as if they're Well, it, it's, it's basically the idea, again, I, please, please forgive me, I keep because making this as caveat, I'm not going into too much detail. Yeah, but it, because because it's so complex, and I don't want, I know for some of you it would be sort of kind just too academic and intellectual. But I mean, what it's saying is, is there is a there's the primary data of experience, which is untouched by our cognitive activities. Oh, oh, oh! Yeah. So there's a, it's not all experience. It's just a primary. It's primary data. Of, there's yeah. an aspect of experience that's, right. that's in flux. Yes, that isn't tainted by which isn't tainted by our cognitive processes. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. and so actually, this the the liberated aspect is to see the emptiness, and it doesn't. It's not a million miles away from the previous ideas of emptiness we talked about, but it's to, to see the lack of that, the actual absence of that constructed aspect in the primary data of experience. I think it throws over a whole other set of can of worms about how we know that experience in the first place, but but that's a, another story. Because Robin Wallace's been talking to us about the possibility of, of letting go of the identity with awareness, you know, so he's kind of in a way talking about Chitamatra as a step on, on towards something else. Is that what that kind of refers to? Yes, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I mean, I think Rob's using it much more in a sort of pragmatic sense of trying to He's shift you. Talking about meditation, yeah, really based on try, and try and shift you from one perspective to another perspective. It's just another perspective. Right. It's another way of looking at things. Is it like saying though that we can't cognitize the primary data? Yeah. It's not really possible to for our minds, for our I don't know, our reason to be able to. Well, it means actually. <laughs> how shall I put this? I'll, again, I'm adding another layer now. This, this is Dharmakirti. This is a very famous um, person within the Yogacaran school. He's basically claiming we always perceive reality. But when we add in conception, then there is misconception. So we always perceive reality, but we're always misconceiving it. <laughs> so actually, the the senses or the sensory organs themselves always get through to the primary data of experience. 
But the moment you add in language, almost this is a much more technical way of putting what I put in a much more simpler way earlier on. The moment you put in language, you've distanced. You've actually distorted it. So let's take the typical Indian example. Is ro- I, I mistake the rope for a snake. Yeah, very important in India <laughs> you know, to get this right. <laughs> you know, I mistake the rope for a snake. It's actually saying you see the rope but you project the conception snake onto it. So the eye perceives the primary data. It perceives that thing lying on the floor, but it misconceives it when it adds in the constructive aspect of the mind. It's one way of saying we're all fully awake in the room. It's another way of saying That's right. We're all, if we allowed ourselves to clear, let's use that word, clear ourselves out of the entrapment of our conceptual faculties, then actually that that awakening would be here right now. How would we communicate? Well, it's again, it's not kind of do away with it completely, but it's seeing what it does. So actually, it's a reorientation so that you that you hold the conceptual dimension in a completely different way so in other words you are not buying into the stories that conception is giving you which is what we always do that's that whole idea of the picture holds as captive so it's actually quite a subtle position ultimately the Yogacaran position And, and I think it's primary report on experience that's where it comes from I think Rob's exactly right to go to the meditative processes that underlie it because they reveal actually what's going on. It's actually seeing what's, what's going on in my experience, what goes on when I sit there and focus on the mind and actually relate to the stories that are going through my mind. I take them as being real. No, they're not. They're just a, a flux of stuff I'm misconceiving. Uh, emotional stories, for example, and this goes back to right back to the basics of some of the stuff we've been examining, get built on Vedana, on sensation. You know, basic, basic, we have two quite childish attitudes in the world: like, don't like, <laughs> and you can build a whole theory of emotions on that. <laughs> yeah. We think of motions as being incredibly subtle, but most of them are actually just replacing a child screaming and stamping its foot. <laughs> yeah, except we doubt we do it now so much more elegantly. <laughs> Seemingly. <laughs> this pre-conceptual place mm. looks very close to what they are doing in Zen, no? Yeah, it is. It's very influential on Zen. That's right. It's, it's, it's the foundation of, of most of East Asian Buddhism, including Zen, the, these ideas. So that's why I say it's, it is a huge dimension. Um, but it's, you, if in the history of Buddhism in, in India, it's of relatively um, small importance. In East Asia, it's of massive importance these whole ways of looking at things which is why I don't think I'm, I'm sorry for those who might find this a bit dry and academic but I don't think we can avoid touching on it because it's such an enormous part of of um, you know, some people's practice actually
Any other? That's a long explanation. It's a, there are particular practices which are not seen as graduated practices, but direct experiences of liberation, like the Zen, Chan type schools. They lead you directly to experience, as opposed to gradually, gradually growing something, which is the model, really, which is much more there within early Buddhism. So this idea that you know, we, are, we are already awakened, you don't actually find in early Buddhism at all. You never find the Buddha saying anything like that. He's never, he, he, the word to target a garba, which is again this word Buddha nature, which gets banded around so much in Mahayana Buddhism, you will not find it at all in the early texts. You will never find the Buddha claiming that anybody is already awakened. He's talking about this process of gradually cultivating the mind, growing something in it, inclining it in a particular direction to overcome distress and pain. So it's a different model, I think. Very, very much a different model. But a nature. Depends on which version. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of those things like Tathagatagabra and Buddha nature you just simply won't find in the early texts. So. Yeah, the idea is there's this pre-linguistic experience mm. that we all have without really being aware of it that you could see directly. Mm. Is that... Is that not exactly. No, <laughs> it's not not quite the same thing. It, I mean, the seeing directly is certainly there, and that's true in all of those sudden, sudden so-called sudden schools of awakening. Isn't but isn't like your um, your sight and your senses aren't they sort of not totally accurate too? I mean, or is it just seems like like you know what you're seeing is. Is, is that what Buddhism doesn't say that either? Well, I think actually within within the particular school I'm talking about, the Yogacara, is the idea that your sensors your sensors are producing accurate data. It's the mind that's producing the inaccuracy. Mm-hmm. So philosophically, I don't. Some of you might have come across this: the, the, the problem of misperception. You know, you get this problem of misperception, which is the idea that we misperceive things constantly. Well, actually, what this whole form is saying, actually, is not a process of misperception, it's a process of misconception. So we see the correct thing, but it's the thinking process, the constructive aspect, which is going awry. Mm. Now, I think there's many, many arguments for and against that position. I I remain neutral on that one. We only see certain frequencies of light here, certain frequencies of sound, and so many parts per million of a smell. You know, otherwise it won't be. So it's not like we're actually really perceiving what's out there. We're just perceiving a version of it. Yeah, not but said that we still can't distort that in our minds. But yeah, but you know, of course, these things weren't known about at the time yeah. these things were being written. Yeah. And so there was a perceived accuracy. Mm. To sense your dark. And remember always, I mean, this is why something to bear in mind if you ever go in and delve into this stuff and look at any of the sort of things we've talked about is that the Buddha Dharma has always been in the service of overcoming dukkha. So what's talked about is really doesn't go into what I call into the minutiae of 
the way a scientist would unpick what's going on in perception, or even the way a philosopher would often. It's actually looking at the relationship between experience and dukkha, between experience and pain, how we create it, how we generate it, you know, what adjustments do we need to make so that we don't continue to do that. Yeah, so it's very pragmatic, ultimately, although it does get very scholastic. I think it can be. I think it can be a report on experience. But, you know, the first, the first thing to say about that as a question is, well, of course, it's a continuous development uh, within the history of Buddhism. So it doesn't arise out of nothing. It arises out of previous ideas and thoughts and even misreadings of early texts you know, that can give rise to that bigger, different picture within it. It's like, you know, within the history of Buddhism, I mean, it's like looking at the history of Western philosophy. You see, okay, say perhaps Plato and Aristotle as being the beginnings, but everything else as being a series of commentaries and changing of perspectives based on that originary material. You know, and the Buddha is the originary material, and everybody's working it over in their own particular ways. Which is why I like to go back to the original material. <laughs> but it's based primarily on the, this rarefication of awareness and consciousness. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the useful part about it. To be aware that you know, what we think isn't real a lot of the time. Yet we attach reality to it. We attach veracity to it. You know, and the moment we attach veracity to it, you know, kind of the stories, then we're buying into it continuously. You know, so that stuff that's going through my head has to be true, because I'm thinking it. Yeah. You, um, you said there was three things. There was Yogachara, Chittamara, and then... Chittamatra. 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 And then Vinjara. No, <laughs> Vijnanavada. <laughs> so have you talked about that? It, they're the same thing. Okay. They're just synonyms for the same thing. They're synonyms for the same thing. Constructed aspects um, and thoughts. You're not talking about just thoughts in the sort of I'm sitting in meditation, there's some thoughts. You're talking about base level con conceiving, as Rob would talk about. Yeah. Conception woven into perception. Yeah. 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 What, what actually you're really ultimately talking about, if you want to unpick it in Western terms, is something like core beliefs, mm. which are buried down, which we're projecting on unconsciously yeah. a lot of the time. Obviously, you can see the difference between a constructive thought, you know, just the ordinary thoughts that are passing through your head. And sometimes we go, well, this just isn't true. You know, I, I know this, we don't have to buy into it. But it's those core assumptions, which are really, if you like, the buried thoughts, yeah, which are there um, and, and seem to be um, intrinsic to our cognitive process. That's what's being questioned. So when they look into theory, of, they get into theory of language in in Yogacara and thought. They actually talk about deep levels of structure. Yeah. It's actually almost pre-Chomsky, if you know Chomsky, yeah. of the way that we process material. All very fascinating, but perhaps a little divorced from experience mm. sometimes. I mean, that's often the way I feel about this. I hope I haven't jaundiced you by putting this across. But I do want to spend a few minutes 
talking about the hindrances. A, because I threatened you with them. <laughs> and B, because I think it's good for your souls. <laughs> or your non-souls. <laughs> okay, the hindrances. Well, hindrances okay is a, is a translation. But um, I think I mentioned to you when I just, when I just briefly um, alluded to them that the word nivarana actually means to veil. You know, it means to veil reality. In some texts, and I found this is a really interesting um, commentary on it, that the Nivaranas, the, these veiling processes, were, were, were termed the generators of mental illness. Mm. Yeah. That's a very powerful pun. It's in the Abhidhamma, yeah. It's in the Abhidhamma. These are the generators of mental illness. Um, and so, I think it's good to get a handle on them if that's the case. A, because they're familiar favourites. You know, I think if you, when you sit down to meditate, you know, make your hindrances your friends. Because you're going to see them again and again and again. <laughs> they're going to be visiting you frequently. So we talk about, let, let's just list them out. I know many of you will know, and you've had many talks on the hindrances, but that's, again, it's kind of like reminding you of the precepts. There is, of course, sensual desire, kamachanda. Yeah. Very, very important. You know, any listing of hindrances, of anusias, you know, fetters, um, latent tendencies will always include something about sensuality. Uh, I mean, it's like heat-seeking missiles. We're sensual-seeking creatures. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. It's like. I mean, if you ever want to see a, a sort of a, a sensual desire operative, just watch how a cat works. <laughs> <laughs> it will gravitate to the warmest, most comfortable part of wherever it can find. Yeah. Um, we're no not cats that different. Are out here, by the way. Um? There are no cats. No, I know they're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've foxes, noticed, though. I've noticed that. There's foxes, there's foxes though. Foxes. Yeah. The near enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, I mean, that we're not a million miles away from what animals are doing sensually. You know, we're looking for the most comfortable, the best, the, uh, the softest, the, you know, the, the delight in sensory indulgence. This is the, this is the hedonistic side of human nature. And you know, this doesn't have to be huge, massive thoughts about you know, sexual desire or anything like that. This is you know, when you're sitting on your cushion and thinking, oh, I'd like a nice cup of coffee or tea or a piece of chocolate or whatever. I mean, actually, these things become incredibly important on retreat, don't they? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed how important food becomes on retreat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a very good indication of sensual desire. What about just shawls? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's all covered yeah. up, warm. Yes, yeah. With all the time gravitating towards um, satisfying our sensual longings, our sensual desires. You know? And so this constant thought of sensual desire is often omnipresent in the way that, you know, particularly I think being on retreat because sometimes it's uncomfortable, it's cold. 
Food always isn't wonderful, you know, things like this. This is, you know, real part of what you're having to cope with. One of the things I, I notice is um, we're not supposed to have fragrance, and I love smell, mm. you know, so the withdrawal of, of fragrance, mm. I notice, as something mm. sensory. Yeah. yeah. But notice how the mind longs for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, it shows your attachment to sensory desires as well. You know, the fact that even when it's not present, for whatever reasons, the mind goes out towards it. Yeah. It's longing, it's a lovely word, longing for it. Yeah. And so our minds get constantly bombarded by thoughts of sensory stimuli. Yeah. Now, much of that, of course, is, you know... Um, to gratify ourselves. Um, often, sensory stimuli can be associated in ordinary life with helping to give ourselves a treat, fill ourselves up in some way. I mean, I often find it a very amusing phenomenon, the way that people often come into work, uh, home from work and will do something like immediately go to chocolate or some kind of sensory delight as a kind of, I've got to have something after this horrible thing called work. <laughs> Yeah, to satisfy them. Yeah. It's very sad. It is very sad. Yes, there's a pathos to it. There's a real sense of pathos to it. Yeah. So we're constantly, constantly being bombarded by thought. You know, so that's just one of the five hindrances. So it constantly means it's veiling our real. Because actually, instead of being able to see what is actually happening, the thought of food, comfort warmth, keeps on obtruding into it. So I can't actually get a clear perception on anything. When that's constantly, and this goes for all of the five hindrances, when they constantly keep up, coming up, they're just kind of just veiling whatever it is. It's like, you know, it's like taking one of your shawls and throwing it over something. You might, you might see the vague outline, but you certainly don't see any detail about what is actually happening. Also, the other thing about it is, as we know, there is an addictive tendency to sensual pleasure. Yeah, very much an addictive thing. So it becomes obsessional. I have to have it. Yeah. I mean, I can remember in the past coming away on retreat, and in my suitcase would be lots of things. <laughs> you know, to, to comfort you in the, in, the, in the harshness of the retreat situation. I mean, I, when I was a monk, I used to go into Bangalore and come back with sackfuls of stuff. Now the airlines charge for it. I paid for it. <laughs> you know, so we're constantly, constantly seeking you know, the pleasurable, wanting it. But it's somehow, I think, this is the pathos behind it, it's a way of trying to fill ourselves up. Now, being in any situation, mostly we're okay. You know, it might be not what you're used to, not what we're accustomed to, but we're usually okay. And this is, you know, particularly on retreat situations, I'll put, put it very pointedly in retreat situation, um, because obviously that's where we are, um, but we're okay. Nobody is going to die <laughs> through not getting, you know, what they want on, you know, as a piece of food or whatever in their, in their retreat. Then there is ill will. That's the uh, Vayapada, which is the next one. 
ill will. Well, of course, that's linked to aversion. But ill will is any sense of discontent that you get. And again, if we notice, when you sit, these are the two strong poles. Sensual desire, wanting to be comfortable, wanting to be pampered. And the other one is, don't like this. Because I'm not. (laughs) They're actually linked to each other. I'm not getting what I want. So then the, well, there's the irritation creeps up, the resentment creeps up, feeling of deprivation. All of these things have come across us very, very strongly. Now, this doesn't have to take the full-blown problem of, you know, really disliking somebody. or It's really just that, what I call the irritant, that's there in experience. So it can just be feeling uncomfortable. It can be just feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, and thinking, don't like this. Does that lead to the tanha? Well, it does. It leads, well, it certainly leads to upadana as well, because the moment that starts to creep in, notice the way the mind clings to it, attaches to it. You know, I mean, don't use them now, but in the old days, they used to use these things for flypaper, for catching flies, you know. And I think of it like that. The mind is a bit like sort of a fly stuck on the paper. You know, it fixates around it, it contracts around it. So we contract around our irritations, our resentments. And even then, and again, this experience that you have, sometimes you'll be thinking about irritations from the past that will come up sitting on the cushion. Things that happened a long time ago. Somebody said they were going to do something, and they didn't do it. <laughs> you know? And it gets you now. You know, it hasn't gone away. It comes up. So it's a real irritant. It's a it's a real piece of dukkering, actually. You know, when we start to feel ill will arising, now those are really really difficult difficult poles of experience. It's constantly pushed and pulled. Sometimes, again, check it out with your own experience. Sometimes sitting through, if you actually identify what's going on, and it's quite good to label sometimes because you can just go ill will, sense desire, ill will, sense desire, ill will, sense desire, ill will, sense desire, doubt! (laughs) You know, or it could go somewhere else, but those are the two very strong poles which are there. And of course, it can go like this, ill will, sense desire, ill will, sense desire, desire, ill will, sense desire, ill will, Sloth and torpor. <laughs> when it all becomes too much. Escape. It's escape, yeah. So when we start talking, actually, I love the old translation, sloth and torpor. It's so wonderfully old. You know, kind of always biblical, isn't it? But um, it's sleepiness and drowsiness that's arising. A very, very common phenomena. Yeah. Very common <coughs> phenomena. And... Some of it might be, if you're doing physical work, might be to do with that. And that's really not sloth and torpor or sleepiness and drowsiness in the way it's meant in the hindrances. It's the sleepiness and drowsiness of escape. Going to sleep, not wanting to deal with it, of evasion that we're really speaking about when we start start sleepiness and drowsiness on the cushion. So... Watch its arising. You can see it. You know, and often you will see the preceding um, things that 
you know, when it's a genuine, not when I'm not when it's not to do with eating too much or you know, for example, working too hard physically or mentally. But when you see the preceding aspects to it, you will often notice there's a great battle between the restless mind going through its sensual desire and its ill will. It's aversion and it's attraction. Because that's what it's about. And you'll often find it's actually trying to evade that difficulty. And actually staying with that process of watching that process. Then, of course, there is, um, well, Udacha Kukucha, which is um, restlessness and worry. That's one way of translating it, Udacha and Kukucha, restlessness. The mind is just churned up. It's just, well, this is obscuring things again, isn't it? It's just like somebody sticking a great big paddle into the mud and stirring it all up. Yeah. And it just cannot settle anywhere, yeah, no matter how hard you try. This is the feeling tone to the restlessness. And it will also manifest as bodily restlessness as well, not being able to sit still. Again, have you noticed that connection? When the mind is often restless, the body is very restless as well. But, you know, there, there are feeling tones arising, the body is um, which are related to mental feeling tones to which we want to either shift or prolong or, or whatever. Yeah. And then there is the worry. And actually, one way of looking at this actually is an alternative translation, which I did play around with for, for a while, which was actually the restlessness is excitement. Um, and... The worry is depressive. Yeah. It gets into a depressive side. So it's almost like the bipolarity of the mind. And a lot of it's to do with expectation. When I start to build an expectation, I start to sit there, you know, very precious coming on retreat. You expect lots of things to happen you know, from it. And often they don't. You know? um, and so I get elated, build up, and what happens? Boom. <clears throat> into almost a depressive side. So it's that kind of swinging from one pole to the other. You know, so it's not so much worrying and thinking about it, it's more that kind of that depressive nature of the mind that manifests when it hasn't got what it wants. You know, that's part of what's going on here. And so you know, it's, it's almost you know, being bipolar. It's showing that bipolarity of the mind. You know, the moment, you know, the the high of the elation starts to come down because I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve. So it's, it's to the idealizations. It's attached to the idealizations. It comes crashing down on the other side. Into, and then it will slip into the fifth of the hindrances. Because when you're in that kind of depressive, worried state, you get sceptical doubt arising. Uh, and uh, that afflicts almost everybody's practice. And actually, this is the, one of the most dangerous aspects of it. You know, when sceptical doubt starts to war- arise, then it can really completely sabotage your practice. Yeah. Which is why, of course, the, the antidote to it is trust and confidence. 
So if sceptical doubt is arising, well, the most immediate practical thing that you can do is take yourself to aspects of the teaching and experience that you've had that you can trust in, that you can hold on to in that way, in a good sense of holding on. To re-establish some ground, because the one the thing about the nature of sceptical doubt is it completely eroding any ground for you to stand on, and it's often just translated as doubt. I put in, which is okay, but I put they put in sceptical doubt because it's that kind of doubt. It's a doubt that can never be answered. Ultimately, you, know, you will never find satisfaction in it. There will be no way of dealing with that. About our own ability, or is it a doubt about? It could be well. It's it's a doubt about everything. I mean, if that's it's so so all encompassing. You know, the teaching's rubbish. I've been wasting my time. You know, um, I could be doing better things than this, couldn't I? Yeah. Why am I sitting here for four weeks doing this? Could be at home. You know, it's a, it's a doubt which is constantly eroding why you're doing what you're doing. But is it the same uh, thing as sort of uh, trying to sort out the teachings? You know, no, that's different. Oh. That's just doubt, and that's useful. Yeah. In, in fact, in Zen Buddhism, I'll talk about the great doubt. Yeah, in some forms of Zen, which is a very useful form of doubt, which is, means you don't buy into something immediately. You start examining it, you start to look at it, you start it's with the, the it's the inquiry. That's right, uh, to the best of your perspective, knowing, of course, that you can't well, you can't see what the Buddha can see, you can't see what an Arahant can see. You know, you're not necessarily doing what the Bodhisattva would do if it's a Mahayana path. You know, so you inquire to the best of your ability at this stage. But this is not of that form. It's an eroding, corrosive doubt. It's like, it's like putting acid in your practice. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, in science, there's like a big thing about skepticism and you know, being critical. How does that, is that... Just for myself, like, I feel it like ingrained in my consciousness, like the whole Western scientific thinking mm. style. And I, I find it kind of like, yeah, it kind of turns, in, it's useful, but it turns into this. Mm. I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on how that relates to Well, I think, I think the, the, I don't know about sceptical doubt. Sceptical doubt isn't, I mean, I don't think you could even progress in, in science if you had sceptical doubt, because it really is just so corrosive. Um, because it would li literally give you no grounds for inquiry at all. Mm. Um... I mean, philosophers in particular have mentioned a lot about this, and particularly Western philosophers have talked a lot about sceptical doubt. As, I mean, Schopenhauer, so he says sceptical doubt can never be answered. It's, it's like a little bastion. The only thing you can do is go round it. Yeah. It's like a little enclave fortification. You know, Instead of attacking it head-on, you're not going to win. What you do is just circumvent it, go around it. Now... When I say to drop sceptical doubt, it means to drop a doubt, a form of doubting which is useless. Now, I'll give you a very, very good example. If you doubted everything when you were at school, you would never have learned, it, learned everything, anything at all. At some point, there has to be some kind of premise that you will accede to. 
in order to form the foundation for inquiry. Those might be, for example, the laws of physics, if you're in science. Yeah. So actually, a lot of science will not question its own assumptions, but proceed from assumptions, which are well-founded assumptions, hopefully, and then develop from that upwards. And so if I was going to take my doubt back further and doubt the assumptions which I'm basing my inquiry on, I would never get the inquiry done. So, in a way, you just you move from a different kind of doubt, and, or the use, useful doubt? There's useful doubt and there's non-useful doubt. Yeah. Can you shift that? I mean, is there, is there a way to... I, I, think, I think there is. There's a, I mean, just think of it in terms of, as I said, of a pedagogical process, you know, process of learning anything and teaching anything. When, again, using the school example, when, you, when you're at school... Um, it, well, you, know, you can doubt some of the things perhaps your teacher says, but to doubt, to doubt everything they say, again, you wouldn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are certain areas, like yourself, you know, in, this evening, you were asking questions and perhaps engaging in some critical engagement with what is being said, but perhaps there are areas which you know, are not being doubted, because they don't need to be, they don't need to be done in that way. For the inquiry to proceed, to unroll. It's like a child, um, it's almost like, you know, you can keep on asking the question why, and some point that has to become the because for, to, for learning to occur. Now, once that is accepted, then, you know, learning can start. And it's the same as shifting this perspective. You know, you think if you want to learn something on this path, then you've got to have a degree of confidence and trust. And that's the absolute opposite of sceptical doubt. So you've got to have confidence and trust. And, and I think this is written into our ordinary societal views. So I think it's anything specific to Buddhism. Hopefully, when you go to see your physician you have a degree of confidence and trust that they know that they're talk- what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that one gave immediately rise to scepticism, but, <laughs> but I think sometimes unjustified. <laughs> but come on, I mean, if we go to a you know, so-called authority on anything, you hopefully have some degree of confidence that they do know what they're talking about. Otherwise, they're not, you, know, you wouldn't treat them as authority that they somehow have seen something more, know something more, have been through all the rigours of training. That's why we are here. Yes. Listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, it's, it, it's, in a way it is that. Yeah, you do come to, to something to hear, you know, um, not to stifle doubt, no, not no. to stifle inquiry, but if you, if you kind of basically questioned everything. A, this session would be absolutely interminable. (laughs) (laughs) And you wouldn't get anywhere with this. Now, this also has confidence and doubt, you know, confidence and trust in yourself as the antidote to doubt in yourself. You know, why do you sit there on the cushion? Well, actually, in some cases, you haven't achieved, but you will achieve something. You'll have seen something. You will have investigated something, and that forms the basis of the foundation for then trusting that it's further things are going to unfold through this process.
Yeah. Well, Dal Dalt is actually another form of Papancha, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting actually that doubt is it's actually quite a late lever in the path. Yeah, it's one of those things that's so ingrained, you know, it's it's not going to go that quickly. Yeah. Isn't that supposed to be? Isn't supposed to go for streaming? It's, it's for for Sotapanna, but I think is pretty pretty far along the path. Restlessness is the last thing to leave. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and subtle ego clinging too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Conceit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Subtle conceit. So there you are, there's the five hindrances. Now they are your familiar friends. Get to know them well. And I really do mean that because it's, it's useful. It, and it, actually, it's, it's not as heavy as it sounds. It's actually quite amusing to sit there going, doubt, sensual desire, who will, <laughs> sleepiness and drowsiness, yeah. restlessness and worry. And you can keep going through them, you just see them. And it's quite good fun for a session. After you, after you wake up, right? After, <laughs> after you've woken up. <laughs> but no, it is quite good fun. And, and don't make them your enemies. You actually dive into these and you can actually you know, come out the other side you know, by, in a way, befriending. So you're observing them? You're observing them, yeah. Don't make enemies of them. Don't try to push them away. Use them as portals for investigation. Yeah. What, in other words, you, know, you can use them as a portal for investigation when you start to inquire, why am I so sensorily attached to certain things? You might come up with some of the things I've talked about, you know, that, that it's reward um, for abstinence. It could be a way of helping to fill myself up because I feel empty. You know, why do I feel ill will? The natural tendency to want to be averse to anything I don't like. You know, that, that is a state you know, is obviously aversion. Inquire into it. What's going on in that aversion? Why, why am I holding grudges? Yeah. Why am I holding resentments? Why am I even getting irritated at myself as I sit here? Which can often happen. You get irritated yourself. Why can't I get my mind to stay still? <laughs> yeah, that's... So quite often the insights will be coming up. If you if you kind of work with the hindrances exactly, and yeah. you kind of so you kind of holding them there, kind of observing them, mm. kind of contemplating on what, kind of contemplating on what's going on. Well, it's a, in a Is way it, softening to the hindrance. That's why I mean by not making an enemy out. It's softening to the hindrance, and then you will see what's going on around it. Then you will start to see some of the mm. other elements that, for you, I mean, I only give you an examples that for you are happening, that keep that hindrance coming up. Yeah. So it becomes a gateway for insight rather than a hindrance to insight. Yeah. Um, because all too often the desire is with the hindrances, is to want to get rid of them. Or, or, I, or, for example, the other one, I think particularly in the Western context, is I shouldn't be having them. I shouldn't be, I'm a good Buddhist, I've been practicing for all these, why am I having this thought, you know, this intense sensual thought about something, you know, simply shouldn't be happening to me, <laughs> and there's irritation. <laughs> With it. It's, it's very weird, isn't it? <laughs> but again, very interesting if you start to soften towards them and inquire. 
Yeah, inquiry doesn't mean analytic inquiry. I mean inquiry by just seeing what's around by that softening process. You said that we were related to propping up. I'm not sure if you said ego, but I, I wish sometime you don't have to go into it right now. But it seems such a such a mysterious as if there's this mysterious homunculus alongside these hindrances mm -hmm. and it's related to it. And mm. Well, we're, we're yeah, we're always pro we're always propping up our sense of self, you know. So, so <coughs> some forms of say resentment, which are obviously ill will, can be a way of propping up ourselves in um, a, you know, in a particular way. We prop ourselves up. We we create our identity by, you know, I am not this person. I am irritated towards them. I've distinguished myself from them. Isn't it the same that you always dislike? in someone else the things you don't accept in yourself. Yes, it is, that's right. And that's why when we started, when we were examining craving, mm -hmm. when we were examining craving, the Bhava Tanha actually led to aggression and annihilation. Now, what you're trying, attempting to do is annihilate within the other what is actually within yourself. Yeah. Now, it's a very strong word to use, I know, annihilation. But in a way, we're trying to, you know, to push away as strongly as possible the, the very traits that are often within ourselves, which we see in others and perceive in others. You know, so we literally can, you know, I don't mean this physically, but we can literally obliterate them mentally as being of no value, no worth to us whatsoever. Yeah, it's a very, very dangerous tendency of the mind. Now, that, of course, our, that supports our ego. That supports our ego conception of ourselves. Our rightness. It's the conceit. It's the conceit, yeah. So, at the heart of a lot of it is that very much that e Well, I call it the conceit of self. I am better than. I am worse than. I am the same as. Yeah. The conceit of arrogance... Well, the false humility that goes with, you know, I am worse than... I would, there used to be an old Monty Python sketch, some of you might be familiar with, that always used to make me think about this, but a group of men talking about what a rotten childhood they had. I look down. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all, I mean, all trying to outdo each other about how terrible their childhood was. <laughs> That's right. Stamp pipe in yard, you are lucky. <laughs> you know, that's the worst, Anne. Uh, a very good example of this, actually, in literature, is um, Mr. Gradgrind in Hard Times. I don't know if you've ever read Hard Times by Dickens. He's always saying what a terrible, terrible childhood, but he'd pulled himself up by his bootstraps and made him into the man he was today. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you, I guess you said this word conceit. So that, but is pride, isn't it? I did this. Yeah. Um, well, that's the the pride that's there within the I am better. But there's a kind of false pride, which is that I am worse. I substantiate my being by making myself uh, out of worse conditions than everybody else. So it's still the same arrogance, but written in a different way. That's all. So, hmm. it seems to me forms of attempting to support something, perhaps something which is 
fictitious, but um, but uh, but uh, but you know you you can't go there. So you're you're literally pumping something up in some ways, aren't you? And yeah. You've got to keep pumping it up because it keeps leaking somehow. Yeah. Well, there's a false. Yeah, you do. I mean, that's a very good analogy in many ways. You have to keep pumping it up because it doesn't really have any substance. Mm. You know, so you've got to constantly keep reaffirming in this way. You know, you can't just say, "Well, I had a terrible childhood once." It's got to be told again and again and again to become a proper narrative. <laughs> you know? Or even my the, the, my narrative about how good I am and how much better I am than other people who keep. You know, particularly you can think this this on spiritual paths actually. Um, of looking down on others who are not following this particular spiritual path and look how, you know, what terrible lies they lead and all the stuff that they get involved in. They're just ter terrible materialists. Notice how that ego enhancement is going on. And I th th it's, it's a really great danger on spiritual paths that, to engage in that, not just overtly, but covertly, quite subtly in our approaches to others. <coughs> thinking about that in terms of the ethics mm. today and how easy it, one could get holier than thou yep. with uh, ethics you know, and become the ethics police or something. Yeah, like that. I, think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things, again, it's, it's allied to it, it's not directly related, but one of the things that human beings are not terribly good at is, is dealing with difference. You know, so if you're on a spiritual path, well, the difference is that people are living material lives. Well, we live material lives, um, but perhaps not in the same way. That's the difference. Yeah. But we don't like. But what we want is sameness. Yeah. Therein lies every totalitarian dictatorship that's ever arisen. Yeah. So the moment we start thinking of sameness for ourselves... In relationship, you know, we want the other to be like me. I mean, I think, A, how boring, for one, um, but also how, again, it's another way of effacing or annihilating the other. Yeah. I don't actually want to deal with the difficulty of difference. What, however that difference presents itself, either racially, sexually, socially, whatever way it presents itself. Spiritually. And spiritually, yeah, that's right. So again, that's linked to a degree of arrogance that we can bring. And I think, it's a, I think this is a very, very important one for us all to watch who engage in this path because it can so subtly, you know, like almost like just a, a drop of ink in water, pervade the water and pervade your consciousness in the way that we approach others. Now this is not the same as being critical in the sense of constructively critical. Yeah. But it's that subtle feeling that we get of elevation. I'm doing something special. It somehow validates me in a different way. And then, of course, there is the um, I don't know the mediocrity. I am the same as. Yeah. Actually, they're no better, no worse. They're just the same as me. And I mean, actually, Christine Feldman did this very well. She actually wrote, uh, gave a very good example of this <clears throat> when she said, she said the, the, the conceit manifests itself in this way. You know, when the teacher is queuing up, getting their, their stuff on the thing and their salad drops all over the floor, they know better than us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really a subtle form of devaluation. It is. It's a subtle way of devaluing, yeah. 
I saw this cartoon of Descartes, you know, and, and he had a little bubble over his head. Mm. I think, therefore I am. And that's when it, it just let go of the thought. And, 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 and then he just wasn't there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that in a weird way what we're kind of trying to do here? That we, we live in this bubble or a balloon, and uh, each of us got you know, a different label on it, John, Bruce, whatever. And it's quite something to let the whole thing go. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, th I think it is, yeah. We can't, well, th that, that label is being placed on something which, as we've seen, hopefully through the retreat, is actually insubstantial. Yeah, it's not, not saying it's not there, but it's not there in that substantial <coughs> way that we think it's there. So we constantly keep pumping it up in a certain way. Constantly keep feeding it. And, it, and the tire always has a leak in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pump it up and the tire has a leak. But, I mean, if I, if I had further time, I mean, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but if I had further time, there is a way that we constantly feed. <clears throat> Just as we feed the physical body, we feed the self in various ways. Uh, and there's a Pali term for this, there's ahara. You know, we're constantly feeding in different ways. Are you, are you going to go into this? <laughs> That's quite important. <laughs> 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 oh, well, useful. Okay, I'll see. <laughs> I probably will touch on it. I mean, I might use one of the question and answer sessions as a bit to talk a little bit and then turn it into a question and answer session. Is it the same as like narcissistic props? Like you can buy these silver plated mobile phones in Harrods for £5,000 <laughs> 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 to say who you are. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah we're constantly, I mean, this is, the, this is the thing, we're constantly trying to write ourselves. Yeah, write our identities into things. It would be so. I mean, it would be so much easier if we just relaxed, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, we're just relaxed into being, not trying to be something in this world. I, I read those R Russian tycoons. There's another word for it. That they have a competition on on watches, mm. and some of them have. Uh, Half million dollar, five hundred million dollar watches. Each one is in competition right. with their timepieces. <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, that's what we're all doing on lesser ways. We're all trying to create ourselves into something. You know, we can do it in many, 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 many different ways. We can do it through the ways that we dress, the ways that we have our hair, the uh, the literature we read, the music we listen to, to our professions, you know, and none of this is wrong. Obviously, the clothes you wear and the, you know, the way you have your hair cut and the way, you know, the music you listen to, but it doesn't actually say anything about you, ultimately. It really doesn't say anything about you, ultimately. It's not who you are. They are manifestations of aspects of personality, but they're not who you are. Yet we identify with them. And it's, you know, it's this word that I keep on using, I think I've used it every, virtually every time I've spoken, identity identification. Yeah. It's what you identify you with. So you become your possessions, you become your knowledge, you become your tastes, you become, you know, all this stuff. This is what you become. 
What happens when it's all stripped away from you? So their forms are selfing. Their forms are selfing, yeah. When we identify with them, when we hold on to them. That's the thing. We don't hold them lightly, do we? We don't Mm. kind of say, well, I just happen to have this taste, and it's just kind of, it might change next Mm. week. We don't do that. It's actually, it makes a statement, and it becomes ours. I mean... I don't want to make too serious a thing out of it, but often that's you know, the way that we see ourselves is through what I call external factors. And you know, we become them. We identify with them so much. And there was a terrific case quite a number of years ago. It was about ten, probably might even be longer years ago. But a man who so deeply identified with his car, with his automobile, um, he'd had it ever since brand new. It was kind of classic car had it for years and years and years and polished it regularly and done all the things and that, and somebody stole it, and he committed suicide. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, okay, I've been joking a lot about things, but, you know, that is how serious it can get when you identify with things. Some people will do that when they lose a job. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So... This process of identification and how we're trying to create ourselves, let us not underestimate it, no matter how minimal it might, the form it might take. I mean, I've, I've spoken about a gross, a very kind of extreme version. Yeah. Actually, I'm just thinking about, um, well, not just Freud, but I suppose the idea is that, you know, when you, um, you know, when you, when you, well, can make them others again. It's uh, I, it, it, you, you incorporate, you identify with them, and that's actually what enables the child supposedly to be able to move away because you've got the internal image of the mother. So our, our identities, you know, created out of all those sorts of identifications. Hmm. But we're not simply the product of our identifications. That's the thing. Yeah. I think it's. Yeah, I, I would have to go into that in a lot more detail, the example you've given, but I, really what I was trying to say about this, we are not simply the product of all our identifications. You know, let's say the catastrophic happens and everything that you really are identifying with is stripped away. Well, A, there'll be terror, I think. You know, there'll be a feeling of nothing was holding us in this universe, in a way. But then you're confronted with a task, which is being... Now, all the other stuff are substitutes for being. Now, I'm not saying don't use them, don't have them, or anything like that, because it's about, actually, the way that you hold them. Yeah. That's the important thing, it's the way that you hold them. But, actually, when, and when kind of things get to the drastic, that's what we're confronted with, the very enormity of the task of being in this world. And that's the kind of ground base. And some people, I mean, some of us actually have it probably as an epiphany occasionally. You know, even, even just feeling that that's happened, that things have dropped away. Even when that's dropped away, you've then got to confront others around you who still have the preconception of the box that you fit into. Oh, yeah. And so even when you are comfortable going from one box to another and knowing that you don't fit into any of them, you still... Like the next stage is then dealing with the projections of others that are still there and always will be. Yeah. 
I think that's right. No, notice how we're constantly doing this, and I think I'll finish off on this because it's quite an important one to perhaps leave you with, how we're constantly either placing ourselves or placing the other in a particular position. You, know, you are this sort of person. I mean, I don't know how many times in my life I've had that done to me, but it kind of echoes in you. You're this kind of person, aren't you? You're a sort of calm person, aren't you? I think, no, I'm not. <laughs> Just in the very obtuseness of wanting to <laughs> be the opposite of it. Um, but we do it to others as well, trying to place others. And, and, uh, and the most common way of placing others is often through, what do you do? That's the question. Now, about 20-odd years ago, about 23 years, 24 years ago, I actually did this. I made this, I did this to somebody and said to them, you know, I was kind of trying to get to know them, and, and, and what do you do? And I had the most marvellous answer, which I thought was an incredible answer. He said, I play at being professor of linguistics. <laughs> and it was the whole idea, it wasn't the job, it was the play. That's what we do. Now, some of it can be serious play because it comes with responsibility, but it's still playing. You're acting most of the time. You're not it. <laughs> it doesn't define you. You're not captured by that title, status, position. Yet that's what we're always doing. And actually, I mean, that, that was the kind of sort of, I suppose, more academic end of society. Yeah. But see how people are placed in society when they're told, well, actually, you're unemployed or unemployable. Well, it's interesting to write a resume and how people have to write resumes for the different jobs that they're trying to. Mm. So they portray themselves differently depending on the circumstances or the kind of... So how they're trying to present uh, themselves, yes, the image yes, that they're trying yes, to present yes, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so and, and put it on one piece of paper is define yourself on one piece of paper because yeah. that's all mm. you can get. Yeah, yeah. See how dangerous it is when we start to identify with that. I mean, some of us can, you know, become a whole set of symptoms. Mm -hmm. For example, your illness can define you. I mean, I've known people make a living out of their illnesses mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. in a particular way. But it's one to look out for because conceit in this way is, is there you know, in our lives strongly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.